Hello, witches. This is Kara Kovacs, and this is Business Witch. As a third-generation witch, at least, and a business and life coach for mission-driven entrepreneurs and leaders, I teach you how to make money and magic as liberatory practices. Because when we know, seek, and embrace our full potential, we create a better world for everyone. Here you'll find tools, conversations, spells, and inspiration that take you from waiting to creating so you can build the business and life you're oh so worthy and capable of having. Let's go. Hello, witches. Always fun to be with you. And I feel like we have a cute little coven going today because I am joined by Risa Dickens and Amy Torek, who are releasing their second book. So this is your second collaboration together, your first book, Missing Witches, Recovering the True Histories of Feminist Magic. I haven't read it yet, so I'm very excited to hear about that one. And then we have recording it right before it comes out, but this episode will come out right after it's come out. So you can go get the book. You can find it in the show notes. Their latest book, New Moon Magic, 13 Anti-Capitalist Tools for Resistance and Re-Enchantment. I'm so grateful to have you both here. Thanks for having us. (laughs) Thanks for being here. Can you tell us? I'm I'm sure that there is a magical origin story. How did y'all decide to become collaborators? The decision is one that's hard to pinpoint because it was really one of those moments where you walk into a space. In this case, it was the green room at a ukulele bizarro showcase. And a mutual friend had booked us both. And this was a million years ago. And we were just like fucking best friends right away. It was weird. (laughs) And, and, you know, we're so different. We were really different then. I would play these really tiny, creepy songs and tell family ghost stories. And Amy would come in, always the closer, just like lift everyone up exploding through the ceiling with her voice we were so different but something about meeting in a green room immediately unlocked a creative potential in our friendship it's like there's something different about meeting in that space we were always already collaborating because we always saw each other as artists who at least were brave enough to take the stage alone you know like I I look back and I hadn't done that that much before I met Amy but she saw me in that way because I chose to be there that day in that way and so she always saw me in that way and so we could write books mm. together launch a podcast and tell stories and call each other up and be like hey do you want to fucking do this weird thing so that's 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 part of the origin story I love that that's so beautiful anything you want to add yeah, again, I just I just want to sort of restate what Risa always already said that like when you find people and you're already in a creative space, it's like a permission, you know? It's like a permission to have weird ideas, it's a permission to work together, you know? Again, we we started making music together and that's such a a fountain of like both like vulnerability and strength and sort of the meeting point of vulnerability and strength. And I think that that's something that we have carried into all of our multitude of co- of collaborations. You know? mm, that's so beautiful. Were you, when you met, already practicing witchcraft in an intentional way? I would say yes. Like Risa and I were both 
witches. Neither of us really has like a a moment of enlightenment where we decided now I'm a witch. Like Mm. I would say both of us were sort of born this way and have spent, you know, our entire lives sort of figuring out what that means. And the, the whole Missing Witches Project is basically like trying to figure out what that means. But interestingly, neither of us can remember the first time we actually broached the subject of witchcraft with each other with each other in like a formal way neither of us remember that conversation so it i mean it's 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 possible that that conversation never happened and it just was like a, a vibe that sort of took us over but one of my favorite bits of that origin story is that um we had started practicing we had sort of formed a little coven and you know our our friends would meet Risa had like a a sort of rooftop terrace for lack of a better word (laughs) at one of her apartments so we would gather there and we would sing songs under the moon and that became something that was a tradition but Risa was talking to one of her girlfriends who worked for the Salvation Army and apparently the Salvation Army will go through like their book donations and they'll take out anything that's not aligned with their ethics and virtues. So Risa's friend had this pile of like witchcraft books that were set to be burned. Like I think about that all the time, like burned like witches at the stake. And and her friend rescued them and like donated them to Risa. And it was sort of this like moment of validation, like to receive these rescued witch books from the burn bin this was long before we ever started the missing witches project as a as a project this was just sort of like a little breadcrumb that the universe left for us to to pick up and follow and and we did wow i'm thinking of how you were saying that you met each other in the like light of claiming your artistry so it was sort of inherent And I'm thinking about like the version of me who discovered astrology at 25 and was like, I remember having this thought, I'm going to become somebody who people can't relate to as well as they could before I discovered this, like was an internal (laughs) thought that I had. And now I have this like beautiful community of astrology friends that like other people in my life when they're hanging out with us are often thinking, I have no idea what the hell you guys are talking about (laughs) and that those people know me in the fullness of that expression. And it's like so inherent and it's so who I am, but that moment of, Oh, I'm going to claim this space. And like, what does it mean? And then sort of also you've been guided to it your entire life. So thank you for making me remember that. (laughs) I love that so much. And I love remembering that time because it is so like you feel yourself unfolding into a new version of yourself, especially when you look back and you can stand alongside that version, you know, but, but because we met there, then when we hung out, like if we had met at a restaurant, maybe we would meet to go eat food, you know, but we met there. So we would meet to 
play music. And turned out we had been both producing these really strange, <laughs> longstanding art showcases for like 10 years in the same small city, like sometimes in venues next to each other. There was a period Amy and I lived on the same block and we didn't know, like it took us so long to meet and we'd been doing so many of overlapping interrelated things, you know. But it's always, you look back only and see what, what's always been coming for you, I think. Mm, that's such a nice reminder. And I think a very good segue into weaving that into magical praxis. And I love something that you talk about in the book is witchcraft as praxis for the pre-utopia. I was like, th there's a lot of just really beautiful writing. And it's wonderful to see a collaboration of the writing, it really feels like you're weaving together and both in conversation, but also the style feels like it could be this almost the same voice. So I'm just, I'm curious about witchcraft as praxis and also your decision to like partner in this way and weave together this work. Well, I, I want to start with that phrase, the pre-utopia. I was talking to a girlfriend of mine. We were talking about, you know, post-capitalism, post-colonialism, like post this and post that, like post thing we were against, post thing we were against. And she was like, I'm tired of like framing my life around these things that I don't want to be a part of. What if instead of like post-capitalist, we said like pre-utopian and that's that's something that Risa and I, you know, have grabbed and run with. That's the we feel like that's the space that we're in now. We haven't figured out all the answers. We haven't like created a beautiful world where everyone has food and water and shelter and that kind of thing. But we're in that the goo phase, I guess. You know, like there's this amazing bit of bio biological science where when a, a caterpillar goes into its cocoon. It doesn't just turn into a butterfly. Like first it turns to goo and then it turns into a butterfly. So the pre-utopia is sort of that goo phase where we're just like completely releasing who we were or what we were or what we thought or the rules that we were abiding by and just becoming like a nebulous blob of ideas and excitement. And then someday, someday, we will emerge as like butterflies with with food and shelter for all. <laughs> Risa, do you want to talk about collaboration? Like, yes, let's talk about collaboration before I go on the the tirade that I'm gearing up for about anti capitalism. My <laughs> part of myself is just like I got angry shit to say. Um, but pre utopia is really anchoring for me. Like, I'm I'm an inherently optimistic, positive person. I just will sob reading the newspaper every day and then like grit my teeth and believe that like things still grow, love still exists, magic is real. And I need a practice that doesn't leave me alone in that feeling, you know, that amplifies that feeling that reaches out somehow into that feeling. And so collaboration is core to how I survive because otherwise I reach out with that feeling of love and then I I can't I can't do it all myself I'm good at some things and terrible at most things and like I need partnership you know I think we all do so being able to collaborate with friends is really so I think so important and such you don't have to call it magic or witchcraft but like who can you turn to and ask for help? Who can you turn to with a weird idea? Like that's how I really believe we changed the world with that. So reaching out to Amy with this idea one day, like 
I had the name missing, which is I sort of had this thought that it was telling stories. We'd been we'd been sending stories back and forth to each other, literally looking for voices we'd been longing for, like more of this history. You know, you start you start to realize, like, I think I fucking love witchcraft. What does that even mean? Who is that? Who are the figures in that? And initially, you do get a lot of white dudes <laughs> who are like, the mother of witchcraft is this gardener dude. And you're like, what? <laughs> that can't be right, you know? So we were looking for those stories. We were looking for those women. We were looking for an intersectional history. And that requires collaboration to tell an intersectional story, right? You're so limited in your perspective. So yeah, it started with just sort of like a toss to a friend, a friend that I knew I could make art with and music with. And I could fail, you know, dramatically in front of because I had done that many times when trying to sing Beyonce or whatever with Amy. <laughs> there was a lot of safety for failure and safety for play in that relationship already. And so as we began to, over that first season and then more in the second season, really write together, edit each other's pieces, we would each sort of take a lead on a piece, but really just support each other, challenge each other, off- offer joyful feedback that really evolved into into writing the books together and it is and it is like really liberating to to have the freedom of a friendship to be like i love this i would say this in this way do you think we could do this could we add this and then just like heart eyes emoji heart eyes emoji 25 times along the rest of the text or whatever but it's just very joyful to create in that way i i think even if i write other pieces alone at some point in the future i will always send them to amy because <laughs> it's like i did a spell once looking for a soulmate collaborator and then turned around and was like oh it's you <laughs> Oh my God. I love that. I want to know what the spell was. (laughs) If it's, if you feel comfortable sharing, I feel like it's personal. Yeah. It's mostly personal, but it involved like a hand stitched with silver embroidery thread bag that I wore for like a month that had symbolic pieces gathered in it around what I was sort of calling forth. And I wore it on my body for a while and then it went on my altar and Everything in it came true. You know, I, I, you look back at those those pieces of witchcraft like a year later, two years later, five years later, and you're like, oh, there's magic to writing things down. Mm, I just did a, a little full moon ritual with some friends last week or a few days ago, and we wrote down things on bay leaves and burned them, and I still have it out on the table. And I'm just thinking as you're telling me like the reminder that, you know, that just happened and to like hold that the vision for everybody who participated in that for it to come to fruition. And the other thing I'm thinking about as we're talking about this is how like lovely and often simple and easy and accessible and like tenderhearted magic is. And I think that that's a lot of the what the book seeks to offer people is like anybody is a witch and like anybody can intuitively drop into doing things with intention when we're not judging ourselves so much. And a theory I've always kind of maintained around this is the reason that people or history has been so violent to witches is because there is nothing more threatening to patriarchy than people who remember that they don't need anything to be powerful except themselves and so, like, of course, we we want to burn or hang or uh, ostracize people who remember their power. That's very threatening. 
that's exactly right. We were sort of like, it made us sad to see the the corporatization, the consumerist, you know, anything that's like, I'm using scare quotes here for your listening audience, <laughs> anything that's like a trend. And, and we've sort of seen this, this again, scare quotes trend of witchcraft, which, which I believe to be part of a, a great reclaiming that I'm, that I'm hoping will, will take over the world <laughs> at some point. But whenever that happens, there's somebody who's going to say, well, let's mass produce this and mass produce that. And for us, that's kind of antithetical to our witchcraft because first of all, again, exactly like you said, like we don't need to buy anything to be a witch. That's like the number one message that we're trying to articulate. Like you'll go online and you'll Google maybe like how to be a witch and you'll see a list of things you need to purchase, a shopping list. And that for us is not it. The core of witchcraft for us is very DIY. Like we had someone in our coven who said um, they were looking for like a, a, a visual representation of the wheel of the year. And they said, you know, I, I couldn't exactly find what I was looking for. So I decided to make it. But they said it in this kind of sheepish way of like, well, I couldn't buy it. So I'm going to make it. But we want to invert that. Mm. We want to invert that completely. Like, can you make it? Can you make it yourself from the little bits of scraps that you have around the house? Or like the paper and pens you bought for your Christmas cards or whatever can you repurpose that to make art in your daily life it's so important for us and and you said like not judging ourselves you know like we we talk about we were talking before about singing and Risa and I singing together and how much that opened up this space for us to make other kinds of mistakes together you know I would tell her all the time like sing a bad note let's sing bad notes and see where it takes us. I, I mean, the the lead singer and, and songwriter for a bit, the band XTC, they were a British band in the 80s. And he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but when he was trying to create a melody, you know, our mind sort of naturally goes in this accepted forms of how melodies go, but he would intentionally try to think of the wrong note the note that doesn't belong there. And then that would inform this new kind of melody, this new kind of music that, that he was able to make from this like, quote unquote, wrong place. And so again, that, that comes down to like, not judging ourselves. People tell me all the time, oh, I can't sing. And that to me is like a tragic, that's a tragedy of capitalism that people believe if you're not good enough at something to like get paid to do it, then you're not good enough. And that to me, again, is like the, it's like capitalism stealing the things that make us human, like our, our human mm. birthrights of, of song and, and writing and, and all of these tools that like inform our, our humanity throughout a hundred thousand years of history. And if, if society can convince you that you're not good enough to have a voice that you're not smart enough, that you're not educate, formally educated enough, then, then that's a tragedy. Like, I think exactly what you said, like not judging ourselves 
in the way that society judges us is an amazing first step. If you're thinking about like, am I a witch? Like experiment with allowing yourself to have a voice, allowing yourself to take up space, seeing what you can make instead of buy. And that's such a huge, huge aspect for me. And I think for our whole coven. Risa, you said a few minutes ago that you were gearing up for something. I feel like the the time is now. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny because I was thinking about all of the the ways that we we think and write about capitalism these days, Amy and I, and we talk about it in our community. This is one of the first interviews that we've gotten to do for New Moon Magic. And so we haven't really been asked about the anti-capitalism piece, um, but it's something I think about a lot, not just for like casual tirades against capitalism, although I'm down for those at any given moment. But, you know, coming on a podcast with the business witch, it's like, how do we really talk about it? You know, I think it's important to think about like, I, you know, we're not against small businesses. We're not against like artisan and craft, but we live in a world where capitalism is so omnipresent and operating on us at such vast distances and such extreme exponential scale that it's almost impossible for us to think beyond it. Like, you know, um, critical theorists, Foucault and Habermas and all these people are like, their whole kind of argument looking at, at Taking up, taking up the argument of Marxism is to be like, it's almost impossible for us to see beyond this right now. Like we can't even, so the work is the work of imagination. And you reminded me when you said that we can't remember the moment where we first had the conversation about witchcraft or we, we first admitted it or we first practiced or something. It's interesting how our like awake ego driving mind erases our experiences of magic like those things are often intent we can't remember our dreams we don't remember when a spell worked we can sometimes even struggle to remember that we did one you know because our conscious brain is so occupied with like keeping us fucking fed (laughs) keeping a roof over our heads the terror of medical bills if you live in in the states and so i think if we want to believe in a future for this planet at all, <laughs> which is like a serious question. Do you want to believe that this planet will survive? Then we have to have imagination. Like we kind of have to have witchcraft. We have to have rituals and practices that inspire what Oriel Marie called on our podcast, the wayfinding of the new world. You know, she's, they wrote, if they said, if you want to wayfind the new world, we have to embrace being in protest. So we have to, we have to play, we have to dance, we have to sing. Those things are, are fun, but they're also really important political for waking up a sense in our bodies that we have a right to speak our truths, that we have power, that we can change the world, that we can reach into our communities and make a difference. So, yeah. Yeah, I I just want to add that that's the title of our book, New Moon Magic, the subtitle, I guess, 13 Anti-Capitalist Tools of Resistance and Reenchantment. That piece is so important to us because a lot of times when you are doing activism or you're in an activist group, the focus is on what we're fighting against. And again, we we know what we're fighting against. We're, we're fighting against exploitation and sexism and transphobia and homophobia and racism and colonialism and 
you know, the the sword of capitalism that's constantly dangling over our heads. And it's important to resist these things and to have part of our focus be on resistance. But the other side of that coin, and we witches, we we love to live on both sides of the coin. You know, mm-hmm. we think of ourselves as a whole coin, not just a head or a tail, but a whole being. So the re-enchantment part of that is exactly what Risa was talking about. What are we fighting for? We know what we're fighting against. So now what are we fighting for? And that is like joy, love, safety, liberation, freedom. And so for us, ideally, (laughs) everything we do, and we found so many times that there are actions, practices, a praxis that that contains both of those things at once that is both resistance and reenchantment because we can't lose sight of either of those things in our world building what don't we want but what do we want mm-hmm. we can't break down a system or tear down a system without that imaginative eye on what are we going to build to take its place and so that that's like the basis of our our craft, I think, and our work. I think it weaves back to the pre-utopia, which is a really important concept because I think particularly like y'all are in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. So where I live, (laughs) I think our political future here in America is something that a lot of people in my friend group right now have, have a significant amount of anxiety about. And so this idea of a pre-utopia of like framing it as if there's this knowing, and I think about this in terms of Pluto's transit through Aquarius over the next 20 years, which is the Pluto return of the United States. And there was an episode in July on the podcast, if y'all want to go back where Juliana McCarthy and Torrance Tremaine go over like that that Pluto return. So if you're like, what are you talking about? You can go listen to that episode and get some more insights. But I think that we're really like at a time that there's going to be a significant amount of deconstruction in order to rebuild. And that I am like both optimistic about that, but it's a 20 year transit. Like what is that going to look like? And the way that you framed it with that pre-utopia as opposed to post-apocalypse, which is like what a lot of people in my community have, you know, feelings about is inspiring and re-enchanting. And then the other thing I wanted to say, because I think it's really important, Risa, that you brought up about like being on a, a business witch podcast and the correlation of like my body of work and, and helping people make money being a really core facet of like a lot of what we talk about on this show, it would kind of be weird not to actually bring it up. So thanks for bringing it up. And something I share about a lot is small businesses donate 250% more to local charities and mutual aid than corporations. Like they're so much more likely to have a recycling program, to have employer-sponsored mental health benefits. And like there are just so many ways in which when we reinstill control of capital into community, we get to be a part of that reconstruction in a way that actually funds the movements that need to be funded in this construct in order for us to be able to get where we're going. And so, 
you know, I, I think it's interesting. I had a friend actually who picked your book up from my coffee table and asked to borrow it when I was done with it, asking me about anti-capitalism in my business. And I think it's been a real exploration in the last couple of years within my own work of saying, like, I want to help people make more money. And I like I live in Los Angeles. I like making a lot of money and you kind of need to in order to be able to live here. And simultaneously, like, why, though? Like, why do I want that? And to me, it's really about, well, if I am in this system, like, how am I going to optimize the things that feel most integral and important to the collective, the community also reconciling, like, I'm probably going to be the one who cares, is financially caring for my family and like saying, I'm up for that. Like, let's do that. How do we build businesses that have that kind of ethos and that those are the businesses that we put our money into because it also goes back out. And so there's more of a reciprocity in it. It feels like for me. Anyway, I wanted to name that and like see where we went with it. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what we're thinking about as we as we go into this world building, you know, how do we I mean, we've always most of human history has had, you know, businesses of some kind. And, you know, Risa and I aren't suggesting that we need to go back to a barter system where if you're a shoemaker and you need wheat, that you have to go and find the farmer who needs shoes and produces wheat. Like, we understand why money exists. It's just not practical to <laughs> have a barter system that works like that. But but at the same time, like, we've we've seen the hoarding that our governments have legalized basically have the corporatocracy that we're living under in north america is not necessarily how this has to go or how this has to end we can come up with so many examples one of my favorites is dolly parton you know dolly parton would be a billionaire for sure there's no she's made so much so much money from you know the publishing rights of her music but she's not a billionaire and the reason that she's not is because she's constantly putting money back into her community, sending books to children, like secretly and anonymously, you know, putting money into organizations that sh that also support her community. And and I have an example of this too. the The town that I grew up in was was a factory town. It still is. And there was like one family that owned the factory, and most of the town worked at the factory, but. People then, you know, this is 1950s, 60s, 70s, like unions, fair wages where a factory worker could own a home and look after a family and not be freaking out. <laughs> Listeners, you can't see me right now, maybe, but I'm just like <laughs> waving my hands around in like a, a panic where, where you actually are not being exploited to that full extent where you can't afford to pay for your life, even though you're working full time. Now, the interesting thing about my hometown was that this family, it was the McLaughlin family that started this factory. And they invested into the community that supported them or that quote unquote worked for them. So in my hometown, there's like a whole lakefront with a museum that was paid for by the McLaughlin family. There are several schools that are, again, paid for and named after members of the McLaughlin family. There's an art gallery. There's a library. 
There's a second museum now that I think about it and their estate that they lived in. Like, fair enough. You know, you're super rich. You can have this beautiful estate. But then when the when the patriarch passed away, that estate was donated to the town. And again, used as a museum, used as a social space. You could go and walk the grounds for free. There was no nickel and diming to make sure to get all the money out of the people. Like there is a way to run a business, even at that scale, where you're investing back into your community. And that's how we avoid this late stage capitalism mm-hmm. by, by not hoarding all of the resources and instead like sharing some kind of fair amount with the people who earned this money for you. And that's what Risa and I try to do too. I mean, we don't make a lot of money on this project at all like barely enough to survive under the most austere (laughs) lifestyle but it's so important for us to reinvest back into the community that we're creating to give the people who support us as much back as we can and I again this is a model that we've seen in the past this is not coming from my imagination this is a model that I grew up under that I saw, you know, yeah, sure, people can be rich. And I I honestly, I don't begrudge rich people their riches, as long as they're trying to do something with them. The hoarding of wealth is really one of the major issues and what has brought us to this point of late stage capitalism. I mean, I don't think billionaires should exist. I do begrudge some people their riches. <laughs> Yes, some people, some people we begrudge their rich, but like if you happen to make a lot of money in your field because you worked hard or you got oh, lucky, yeah. but then you reinvest into your community, then then great, yeah. uh, you know. But it's when we when it becomes evil, yeah, because that's what it is. If you're sitting on your golden throne and watching people starve, that's evil. Yeah, but we've and sort I- of lost sight of the fact that that's fucking evil. It's fucking evil, and I think you know. It's pretty clear that we can't trust market forces alone to make people behave ethically. Like that's been kind of proven over and over again. The way we get changes through regulation and the way we get changes through taxation. So, you know, places like California versus a place like Texas, they might have similar taxation rates, but they're not using that money for the citizens in Texas, right? You can't even have water on the job. <laughs> they mm-hmm. want kids to go back to work. Like you're in in most of the United States, you're actually taxed at a higher rate than we are in Canada. But all the money from that, almost all the money from that taxation in Canada goes to public goods, right? So the idea of re-enchantment, we, we picked up on, I mean, there's a lot of interesting conversation about enchantment and disenchantment, but Silvia Federici writes Reenchanting the World and specifically in the context of the commons, right? She returns her attention to the commons and looks at the history of the land enclosures in the UK and, and that really important history of capitalism, the, the important history of like this institution of of property taking what was common away from people and saying now this land is ours and you pay us for it so i i mean i look at things like the history of the open source movement and the way it's come to a balance now and i mean it's a fraught balance and you know people are people so it's never clean but there is a balance between what is proprietary and what is money making and what 
is in the commons, you know, what is an open source. And there's like a pretty smooth balance between proprietary projects uh, and professional huge corporations spending money on sending engineers to work on open source projects because they benefit from those tools. And so does everybody else. Like the more that we can keep a balance, I think like Mm -hmm. capitalism is like a muscle we've overused. And so we're like, we're like those bros at a muscle beach that like couldn't run a half a mile, but have giant, you know, shoulder muscles or something. Like we're just out of balance, I think of it. And I think focusing on on the commons in every respect, like the land back movement looks at all of this uh, crown land in Canada or BLM land in the States and is like, that should all be managed by the people whose traditional territory it is, who have a very different way of thinking about land ownership and property at all, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, for us, this is all involved in witchcraft. I don't know if that's okay. No, anymore. it is. It totally. <laughs> it, I mean, I think of that too, like in I, as someone who lives in California, that uh, there was a way in which indigenous communities knew how to do controlled burns here, so that the fires that we've been experiencing in California, like if that land was managed by the original stewards of that land, like how different. Would that be because they actually know how to manage the land because they are the stewards of the land? And I think so I bring this book up all the time on this show, but it really is so foundational uh, for a lot of the ways in which I think about this. And I think it, it's worth bringing up again is The Soul of Money by Lynn Twist. Have you read it? You should. It's amazing. She was the head of fundraising for the World Hunger Project for like 30 years. And she said that in order to have that job, she needed to believe that they could cure world hunger because she was asking people for a lot of money. And if she didn't believe that they were going to fix the problem of world hunger, she wouldn't be able to do the job. And that we do have the resources and the infrastructure to be able to figure out the answer to that problem. And the reason that we have not Like, she's like, we can circumnavigate the globe. Like, we can have nuclear warfare. Like, we can send people to outer space. And, like, we can't figure out world hunger. Like, no, we can figure it out, right? And she writes about in the book how the biggest disease of scarcity is the people who are hoarding resources. That, like, their belief in uh, the need to hoard and the, the belief that there is not enough is the reason that the problem itself has not been fixed. And I think if we look at thinking about things from a collective lens, like, yeah, I actually do benefit more when you benefit, like, because when we're both happier, we interact with each other more kindly. (laughs) And like, when we all have food, like people are less irritable and we get into like less arguments on the sidewalk or on the highway. And like, so that there is actually a real benefit to caring for each other in community. And I think the disease of scarcity, uh, like of, of wealth hoarding resources because of the belief that there is not enough being actually something that the people who have the most are most afflicted with, which he writes about like, you know, going and talking to really, really wealthy people who just like want the tax write-off and didn't care about the movement. And that they're the ones who seem the most afflicted. Whereas she goes to these countries where they have very, very minimal access to resources and they all walk together hours and hours to get water. And they're like, so grateful and like feel very abundant. 
And so I think like what you're speaking to really gets to the heart of like the, the emotional implication of the divisiveness that exists within the construct that keeps us all separate from each other and like ill-equipped to fix a lot of the bigger issues. Does that have to do with witchcraft? I'm sure it does. (laughs) Yes, I'll I'll give you one. Um, (laughs) Sylvia Federici argues that part of what the witch hunts did was to um, separate us from each other. So before your, you know, your whole town, your village, your area, people were, you know, helping each other out. It's what you had to do to survive. Now here comes the witch hunts and suddenly we're suspicious of our neighbors. We think maybe they're going to murder us or put a spell on us. So now we've, we've made our connections tighter and smaller um, because we no longer trust each other. So yeah. I mean, we can we can take a look at the witch hunts as as a tool of of capitalism to to destroy our sense of community that we had with each other just by nature the nature of like sharing a geographical location, you know. Yeah, the witch hunts were a really explicit tool of imperialism all over the world. It was the same pattern in that colonizing nations used you know all throughout the world any any story we've told we see it over and over again that this this like separating of people targeting of traditional spirituality traditional knowledge and targeting of like women who owned their own land women who lived without a husband (laughs) you know that 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 those were all older women women who had finally made it the fuck out you know maybe their husband died they inherited some land those are really dangerous to those are you know those were some of the leading organizers against the enclosures act which you know all that resistance to the enclosures act you know is tied up in the witch hunts in those periods so yeah it is i we think it is all fucking related to witchcraft and that this movement now of people especially women and queer people people of marginalized genders and identities the global majority being like we have power we have a right to our own power and we're going to use our traditional tools and invented tools and we're going to come together and create new tools to try to survive this lie that you've been telling us that there isn't enough for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to add one more book to the reading list here. Um, there's a, a very short book, listeners, you can read it in a couple hours, um, called Witches, Midwives and Nurses by Barbara Ironreich and Deirdre English. And the thesis of that book is that part part of the witch hunts were due to the professionalization of medicine. So we used to go to maybe the old woman in the woods who understood herbalism, who, you know, knew how to give you a safe abortion, all these kinds of things. But suddenly, now there's a medical profession and only men are allowed to go to medical school. And these men who go to medical school have to pay, and then they're going to be paid. So we need to sort of demolish the competition. So yeah, witches, midwives, and nurses, I Mm. I recommend it to everyone that I talk to, because it really is this very clear line between professionalization, i.e. money, and destruction of people who are doing things in a different way, in a non-capitalist way. Wow. I want to talk a little bit about your book. 
<laughs> I feel like we should we should talk a little bit more about the book. Can you say why the new moon and not the full moon? Yeah, I love that question. Um, so the new moon, your witches, you know this. I I definitely feel this in my body. Like new moon is not party time. It's not performance time. It's not, you know, new moon is not flourishing time. It's not fruits of my labor time. Like new moon is very quiet and I can see a lot further because this the big bright thing is out of the way, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the sun isn't shining on the moon's face. And so in this darkness, everything kind of gets deeper. We can see a lot further and seeds we plant at that time, they have this, I don't know, opportunity. And then as the sun, you know, returns on the face of the moon, as the moon returns and the moon starts to get bigger in this sort of monthly flow, your seeds can start to get bigger inside of you too, you know? So we wanted to write a book that wasn't about like, it wasn't about the the end of the journey of learning a tool where you're a professional now or you have all these skills or you're, you know, you're, you're, you've really like learned it and you've optimized it and you're performing it and, it, and there's sort of all of that aspect of it. For us, we wanted to write a book about that first moment of encounter with something that, that like that spark of potential in something. Like we want to talk about seeding things in our lives. So it's not a book about how to use song or music in your craft for, for, you know, a professional performer, it's about like letting that first moment of your voice go. It's about like learning to just start to play with sound and magic or, you know, to draw yourself into maps, to really like start to feel, lean on the edges of where you might start to feel more power. And so we suggest, you know, one chapter for each new moon of the year, jump in, Whenever you get the book, you do not need to read these books in order. Same with same with our first book, Missing Witches. It goes around the the sabbats, the wheel of the year. And our favorite thing is when people tell us, like, I got your book. I decided to start a chapter seven because <laughs> that's what that's when it was, you know. Yeah, we we want you to feel the magic of that moment of potential. Yeah, I I just want to return to this like why the new moon and and recently covered a lot of ground but a word that i i want to make sure is in this circle is is gestation um whether it's a womb whether it's soil um gestation this like first spark of life and growth it happens in the dark again whether you're thinking of a womb or you're thinking of the soil or you're thinking of the new moon there is something about an encompassing darkness that's like a permission to seed and to just start to grow. So gestation, I think if there was a one word answer for why the new moon, it would, for me, the one word would be gestation. And this is coming out on September 12th. I think this podcast episode will be released just a few days later. So where can people pick it up? You can get this book in all the book places. <laughs> um, yeah, it's at Barnes and Noble and all the all the bookstores. We love it if you request it at your library. That's pretty cool. It actually helps authors a lot, and we love to imagine that librarians are knowing that we exist. We love witch librarians. We love you, librarians, for everything you do. 
get or ask your local indie bookstore to order it for you. That's like pretty radical, transformative way of of connecting. Yeah. And it and it's like a, an anti-capitalist method, like the library or your local indie. This is something that these are things that we need to invest in, not necessarily with our money if we don't have any. Like y'all, we feel you. <laughs> but you can even just go and like talk to the person working at an indie bookstore, tell them about our book. You don't need to order it or buy it, but like spread the word to these little places that exist to sort of foster new ideas. And indie bookstores are are, are a perfect place. The library, indie bookstores. Yeah, we would love that. And I will add like no shame if Amazon is how you get your shit, like if you are remote, you have accessibility issues, like we're not here to shame anybody. Please survive as best you can under late stage capital and know that we love and support you. Get that fucking Amazon listing. Like we, that's that's all good. That's all well, I, I will say I do order things from Amazon, but I order my books from bookshop.org. So you can make if you have accessibility issues, go to bookshop.org instead. <laughs> yeah. Um, where else can people find out about your work? Uh, missingwitches.com has got all the goods. Our podcast is everywhere that you get the podcast. We have a new season starting September 21. Those we do researched histories. We tell histories of missing witches. Mostly we're telling them to each other. Turns out other people like those too. And then we're doing some launch events around the book. So if you want to come to a like a virtual witch in stitch with us and a bunch of like women-owned, queer-owned indie bookstores, come hang out. Let's craft some shit. I think that's October 14th on the new moon in October. What else do we do? Instagram? Yeah. <laughs> we're missing witches on all the places. So you can find us. And we will link those things for you in the show notes. And to close out, I always ask every guest the same question. What's your why? Why do you do what you do? Uh, because we can. I think because we can. Like, and then maybe that sounds glib, but we can. Like, I, I was reading about you, Kara, and uh, I saw that you said that entrepreneurship is a liberatory practice. And what that means to me is that you get to make your own rules as you go, change them, experiment without the like weight of other people's expectations or boss, corporatocracy, all of that. And so witchcraft too is a liberatory practice, creating your own space. We have our own social media space that our members can, you know, feel free to be themselves without being judged by people you went to high school with on Facebook or whatever. <laughs> so again, like, I don't want to sound glib, but so know when I say we do it because we can, that it's a liberatory practice. Yeah, I love that. I was just going to co-sign that um, and I'll add, you know, so often in conversation with the people that we get to interview, I end up being like, who the fuck gave you permission? But like in the best way, you know, like I'm in awe of you that you just felt like, you had the permission to flip all the tables in your life and ask these questions and research these things and tell these stories and do whatever it is. And so I feel like I just, and also I have a kid, you know, and I want to live in a way that later she looks back and is like, who the fuck gave her permission? Like that's <laughs> badass. My mom did that. You know, that's like my highest, highest aspirational goal that, that she'll be a fan. <laughs> 
Uh, I, I mean, as a huge fan of my mom, who is a very cool witch, I love that. <laughs> Thank you both so much for being here. Witches, make sure you go out and get the book, and we will see you next time. Bye for now.